0: Let's go ahead and turn uh, to John chapter 19. And if you're in in my Bible, if you've got my Bible, and you just turn one page over, you see the book of Acts, uh, which means we're getting to the close of what has been uh, a tremendous journey through uh, this wondrous gospel as we've seen God's word clearly. But this morning, Uh, We're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday. Uh, We're going to begin reading at verse 17, and we'll read from verse 17 to verse 30 in a sermon entitled, The Crucifixion of Christ. The Crucifixion of Christ. So if you found your place in John chapter 19, verse 17 through 30, would you join me in standing for the honor of reading God's word together? Look at all these open Bibles. Can you believe this? The word of God, the word of life, we get to read from this and hear God, the God of a universe, speak directly to us from His word. No wonder we stand in reverence. Amen. Verse seventeen says this: They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place uh, to the place called the place of a skull, which in is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him. Two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. And this was, kids listen, "...to fulfill the scripture, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore their soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, "'Woman, behold your son.' Then he said to the disciple, "'Behold your mother.' And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do submit this word to you knowing you are our king and knowing that the work required for us to be able to have fellowship with you, to be able to be your children, is in fact finished. So Lord, there's There's nothing more we, as your children, need to do but to continue to place our trust, our faith, our hope in what Jesus accomplished and who he is. Father, remind us of that this morning as we look at the sacrifice of Christ, as we look at what you had planned for the the beginning of time. um, Lord, we know the covenant you made with the Son. As we look at this, may we think in our own lives Um, what we may be struggling to sacrifice and give up to you. And Lord, in light of your sacrifice, may we lay that at your feet. Because Lord, you gave it all. So Lord, what therefore can we hold on to that is truly of everlasting value compared to what you gave us? Lord, help us remind us of that as we seek your word. And may we, may, may we look more like Christ because of your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So this morning we approach our, what is undeniably the greatest event in human history. Uh, the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we are considering this morning... Um, this subject and this is something that God's people remember had been waiting to happen for thousands of years in fact this is the event that all of the Old Testament pointed towards since the time of the fall in Genesis 3 God was preparing his people for the seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent this is the very thing now that God had promised ever since Genesis 3 to come to pass. This is that event. This is when we actually see the heel of our Savior being bruised in achieving his victory over the serpent, over Satan, over sin, and over death. Not only is this something that the Old Testament saints look forward to, but this is something even the gospel's anticipated. Even from the birth of Christ, The Lord has given us uh, even a sacrament for his church that we observed uh, two weeks ago in which we perpetually remember this death as a church of Christ, the Lord's Supper. So with, with so much of scripture and so much of church life focused on this event, there can be no doubt that this is in fact the greatest event that has ever occurred in all of history. Now, what's interesting is John doesn't really provide us with all the details uh, of what happened to Jesus as he made his way to Golgotha that day. He doesn't include a number of things that the other synoptic writers, the writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, like the fact that Simon the Serene was commandeered by the Romans to help Jesus carry his cross when Jesus could carry it no further, He doesn't mention all those things that we know and associate with this crucifixion story, but John does include a number of things that the other accounts don't include. It's because of John's gospel we know about the controversy of the inscription that was placed above Jesus' cross. It's because of what John has included that we know about the care and love that Jesus displayed even while hanging on the cross for his mother It's because of what John has written that we know that Jesus cried out when everything was done, those three words, it is finished. These are details that are only given to us by John alone. So that leaves us with the question, why did he include the things he did and leave out the other things? But remember, his gospel was written with the purpose of emphasizing the sovereign plan of God in redemption. And he also emphasizes throughout his gospel the obedience of Jesus to carry out that work which the Father had given him to do. And so he's writing with that perspective in mind. So now with that said, let's give our attention to the opening verses of our text. I know your outline looks heavy. That's, don't worry about that. Some of those are going to be on the screen at the same time. We're going to work through that. Uh, but let's begin starting with verses 17 and 18. And really our goal is just to glean wisdom from scripture as we look at the narrative of this event. We know uh, pretty well. Starting verse 17, the word of God says this, they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Uh, we talked to our children about this. We're going to spend quite a bit of time this morning looking at the way many of things Jesus endured on this very fateful, brutal day of the cross were a fulfillment of what the scriptures had already prophesied. So we begin by noting that we're told Jesus went out to the place of his crucifixion. The sacrifice for sin was taken out of the camp. You remember in a prior sermon, we considered how Jesus dying on a cross was a a curse and how in the words of Paul, he's dying upon the cross and in his dying upon the cross, he became a curse for us, for his people. Well, it's also true according to the Torah, according to the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of Moses, that the sacrifice for sin had to be taken outside the camp. You remember our sermon in Leviticus chapter 16 about the scapegoat, right? The scapegoat had to be taken outside of the camp. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this interesting connection to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the Old Testament commandments of what to do with that sacrifice when he says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, these words. He says, "'Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate.'" So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. "'Jesus suffered outside the gate.'" And why would that be important? Why would John need to include this particular detail? Because it's no mere coincidence that Jesus went out that day from the city to be a sacrifice for sin. Uh, Neither the soldiers nor any of his enemies knew that in taking Jesus outside of Jerusalem that day, they were in fact fulfilling prophesied scripture. That's not the only thing we note in verses 17 through 18. We're also told that Jesus bore his own cross upon his shoulders on that day. The sacrifice for sin bore his own cross. And this particular detail touches on his active obedience and carrying out the work of his father that he had given him to do. But when we think about this, this relationship between the father's will and the son's obedience, it most certainly must remind us of an account that took place long before this. Many of you will recall what I'm talking about. I'm referring to that passage in Genesis 22 where Abraham was told by the Lord to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Uh, There is a particular detail in that account in Genesis 22, which always stands out to me when I read it. We're, We're told that Isaac himself carried the wood for the sacrifice, his own sacrifice, up the mountain that day. The very wood that he would be laying upon, he would be placed upon to be a sacrifice, Isaac carried up the mountain. Well, Jesus too carries the wood upon his back. The very wood he would be staked to, to be offered up as a sacrifice for sin. Because the thing we need to remember between those two accounts, the one of Isaac and Abraham and the one of Jesus, is that Isaac, by God's mercy, was spared. A substitute was offered in the place of Isaac. God offered a ram caught in the thicket to take the place of Isaac on that sacrifice that day. But when it came to Jesus, there was no sparing because there is no substitute for Jesus. Nothing can take his place. Nothing could take his place on the altar that day. He had to die because he is the substitute. If you remember in that story in Genesis 22, Abraham called that place later on, the Lord will provide. How interesting is it that so many hundreds of years later, the Lord did provide for himself a sacrifice in giving his only begotten son to be a sacrifice for the sin of his people. Truly, Scripture is amazing. John goes on to tell us that Jesus was crucified between two other men who were guilty of murder and robbery. This, too, is another important detail because it is a fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. We see the sacrifice of sin numbered among the transgressors. Why wasn't Jesus on the left side? Why wasn't he on the right side? Why did he have to be in between? Because scripture prophesied it would be that way. He was numbered among the transgressors. Concerning the coming Messiah, Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53, 12. Isaiah says, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for transgressors. See, friends, as Jesus died in between those criminals, he did so as Messiah. Just as Isaiah said, he poured out his soul unto death that day while at the same time being numbered with the transgressors. He had a robber and a murderer on both sides, on either side of him. And he was dying the same death that those two men were dying. And as we note the many passages of scripture which were prophesied about the Messiah, and we see how Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies to a T, we're able to see that Jesus must be the Messiah. Listen, I need you to hear this. If Jesus is not Messiah, then there is no Messiah. He is the only option for Messiah. Jesus is it. And it's crystal clear. There are many who reject this, who are still waiting actively this day for the Messiah. My, how the mind of unbelievers is blind to the scriptures. How in need we are of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the things in his word. Let's move on now to verses 19 through 22. The word of God says, Pilate. Also, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Well, once again, as we've seen uh, throughout chapter 19, even verse uh, chapter 18, we've seen the subject of the kingship of Christ come up over and over and over again. See, Pilate thought he'd get another jab in to the Jews by having this inscription written above the cross of Jesus. And of course, the Jews complained to this, uh, about this to Pilate, but Pilate, actually having been previously worked over by these Jewish leaders, decides, I am not budging on this, <laughs> You can almost see the disgust. He is tired of these people. He says, I am done with you. You got what you wanted, so so leave it be, and he left it. Now, it's interesting to note, though, that this inscription was a title. Even the way it was written was by the sovereign hand of God. Why did Pilate write a title on the cross of Jesus? Because you know what was supposed to go on that inscription? The crime he was convicted of. So the reason that Jesus gets a title and not a charge is because he was never convicted of a crime. It had to be a title. It couldn't be a sentence. Jesus was innocent. But with Jesus, all Pilate could do, in this instance, was give him a title. And it was a title that would allow him to rub some mud in the face of those pesky Jewish leaders at the same time. But the fact that Jesus is referred to as king of the Jews in three certain languages is also meant to convey something for us. I, at least I believe it is. The more we generally understand about these particular languages, the easier it will be to understand what we should take away from this. It was written in Hebrew or Aramaic for the sake of the Jews. Because Jesus is the king of the Jews. <laughs> It was written in Greek because that was the common language of the day so everybody could understand. It was written in Latin because that was the official language of the government. So think about this, just for a moment. Why in the world would God have Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, written by Pilate above the cross of his only begotten son? Because it's for all the world to see. Jesus is the king of everyone, (laughs) Jesus is the king of the Jew, he's the king of the Gentile, he's the king of the Greek, he's the king of the government. It's for all of them to know and understand that Jesus is the king. And while Pilate did this in jest, in retribution to the Jews, the reality is what he wrote about Jesus there in that inscription is in fact true. He had written again beyond his own understanding Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Israel of God, which is the church. But he's also the king of all the nations and all governments. And so at the end of the day, we see in this title from Jesus a call to all people throughout every society, throughout every culture to recognize the crown rights of King Jesus. It's written in three languages so that all the world may know that Jesus is, in fact, king. And look, it's just along these lines where we as a church, we, we labor to support those who translate the message of the gospel into various languages around the world. Why is it do we, uh, do we send missionaries to preach the gospel in foreign lands? It's simple. It's to make the kingship and salvation of Jesus Christ known to all the world. Uh, one day... I always look forward to this in heaven. One day we will have the privilege to see and experience what it's like to see people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping this king. I just can't picture that and not get excited. We will be there to see it if we belong to Jesus Christ. He truly is king over all and for more on that i'd charge you to listen to lax sweet sermon as we reiterated that time and time again moving on let's look at verses 23 to 25 now or 23 to 25 a the break is weird it says then the soldiers when they had crucified jesus took his outer garments and made four parts a part to every soldier and also the tunic Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So here once again, right off the bat, we've got another fulfillment of scripture prophecy, right? We remember what brother Bob just read for us. The soldiers divided his garments. It's what we see here. This is a fulfillment of prophecy and this time John even tells it to us explicitly saying the scripture might be fulfilled. This is the reason these things were done. And this dividing of the garments of Christ, it's something that's prophesied. And to me, what is probably my favorite, most descriptive, along with Isaiah 53, prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is almost eerie, folks, because in Psalm 22, you have a direct description of crucifixion before things like crucifixion were even invented. Wasn't even on the radar at this point in time, and yet God gave this prophecy directly to David to write in this psalm. Look at this psalm with me in verses 14 through 18. Jesus speaking through this psalm says this He says, I am poured out like water. You remember what happened when they stabbed Jesus in the side with a spear? poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. It sounds as if he's hanging somewhere. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. He sound thirsty to you? We're gonna see that come to play in a little bit. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. He's surrounded by Roman Gentiles, which were often referred to at that time as dogs, and a band of evildoers, a criminal to his left, a criminal to his right. They pierced my hands and my feet. Come on, folks. This is amazing. This is the word of God. This is true. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. How can anyone not believe this? All the details of the things that are, that are going on during this crucifixion were prophesied in great detail, kids, a hundred years beforehand. Several hundred years beforehand. It is an amazing thing. But but when we think about this particular prophecy of the garments, uh, we're, we're meant to understand that Jesus was basically stripped naked and his clothes were divided among the soldiers. Gordon Ketty makes an interesting remark here. He says this. He says, These details would seem rather trivial in relation to the narrative of any man's death, except for the fact that they turn out to be the fulfillment of yet another prediction of the Messiah. And he's right, isn't he? If this was just one sort of detail, uh, the sort of thing to happen to anyone here like you or me, or it happened to two other people on the cross that day, we might read that and say, well, that's certainly tragic. But we would hardly think there's any great significance to it. But because these details were prophesied hundreds of years beforehand, and because they came to pass precisely in the manner they were prophesied, we see the great significance it adds to the proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Scripture. We also see that Jesus was stripped naked that day. The soldiers stripped him naked. This is one more manner in which Jesus suffered in his humiliation. And much like we saw last week, the sermon also connects to Adam here. You recall after Adam and Eve had sinned, they were filled with shame over their nakedness. In the humiliation of our savior he took himself upon himself the shame of our nakedness and he provided us with the clothes of his righteousness. And I'd like to make a point of application here. Church, we must be careful to not make the same mistake that these soldiers made on that day. What do I mean by that? You see, they didn't see anything of value in Jesus Christ himself. The only thing they saw in value when they looked upon Jesus were his clothes. When they looked upon him, they only saw an opportunity to get some sort of material thing for free. Church, can I I tell you, many people make the same mistake today. When they hear about Jesus or when they come to where Jesus is being preached or lifted up or worshipped among his people, all they can think about are the benefits they derive from him. Some people are only willing to come to church because they like the friendly atmosphere or they enjoy talking to people. Some are lonely. Some simply just don't want to be alone, and that's the main reason they come to church. Some need time away from their children, so they come and take advantage of our ministries. But folks, to love the church and to love Jesus Only for the fringe benefits you can get is to miss the true value of Jesus Christ and His church. To want to be near Jesus for those other things is like only getting married to have somebody cook and clean for you. This isn't seven brides for seven brothers, right? It's not the case anymore. It's to miss out on the true purpose and blessing that marriage is. So come to church. Draw near to Jesus because of who he is. That's where the blessing is. Be blessed in getting to know him and growing in a relationship with him. Don't be so foolish as to be satisfied with only enjoying these fringe benefits because if that's all you're getting from Jesus, then you're not getting what you most need from him. In the long run, that would be bad news for you. And what you most need from him, friends, is simply more of him. If you don't have him, you need him. If you do have him, you need more. Let's look at verses 25 through 27 now as we observe from this text. The rest of verse 25, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Let me say that the Roman Catholics certainly make much of this passage, but they do so in uh, the wrong way. Uh, what they see here is not so much the apostle John given a responsibility to care for Mary as they see the apostle being put under the care of Mary. Mary. And in viewing it that way, they see here a reference to Mary being the mother of the church. So when Jesus said, woman, behold your son, and John, behold your mother, it essentially meant to them that all within the church are the sons and daughters of Mary. That is a tough hermeneutic if you know anything about interpreting the scriptures. But friends, this this has nothing to do with what Jesus intended to say by saying these things. We simply see in this passage a suffering son caring for his grieving mother, and this is, this is a tremendous application for us here, too, as well. Think about this. The suffering son cares for his grieving mother. I think that approach of the Roman Catholic, misses the whole point, and it actually diminishes the beauty of what is being seen and done here by Jesus Christ. Just think about what Jesus is going through at this time. He's been beaten, flogged, humiliated, mocked. He had to carry his own cross across his back that had open wounds upon it. He had nails driven through his hands and his feet. He is hanging upon that awful cross having to use his pierced feet and wrists to lift his body just to be able to breathe. And on top of this, he is on brink of receiving God's wrath to suffer the sins of his people. And all of this is going on right now in this very moment, yet where do we see him placing his attention? In the midst of all this horrible suffering, he is concerned about the care of his mother. He wants to make sure she's going to be cared for when he is gone. That's why he entrusts her to John. Remember, his, his brothers were still doubters. They weren't yet followers of Jesus, so he wanted to leave her with somebody who would nurture her in her faith. It's remarkable to think about the care of Jesus in the midst of his suffering. It reminds me of Psalm 8:4. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Church, what a tremendous application this has for us, isn't it? In this scenario, we see the love of Christ and the concern he has for his own. Listen to me, if, if Jesus could be concerned for the well-being of his mother while he was under the terrible pain of crucifixion and the terrible wrath of God, that shows that he is more than able to care for and be concerned with our well-being at all times, We have nothing to be worried about as the children of God. If Jesus is concerned about us, and he is if you belong to him, then he will provide all the things you need. We have this conversation with Addie every night. She's sleeping in her bed like a four-year-old does, like, like a big girl, by herself at night. And every night it's the same story. Daddy, I'm scared. Daddy, I'm scared. And I feel like I could be a lawyer with the bargaining that goes on in those instances, right? No, you're not. Exhibit A, last night you made it through the night and you were fine, right? Uh, exhibit B, if I told you you don't have TV tomorrow, if you're scared, are you still going to be scared? Uh, just trying to get at that. But every night we come down to this conversation. Because she asked me every night, we start with, baby, who takes care of you? God does. Yes. So what do we do when we're scared, when we're worried? We, we pray. Well, daddy, will you, will you pray for me? And every night we pray, God, you are the most powerful one in all the universe. There's nothing that happens outside your hands. Would you please, in the moment where we're fearful, remind us that you are the one that takes care of us. If we're with you, if we're in you, nothing can happen that you don't allow to happen for our good and your glory. Every night we have this conversation. Friends, it's good for me to be reminded of this. When when those worries come up, when I'm having irrational fears at all times of what's going to happen the next day or fearful for my children and their safety at any point in time, I have to remember the same exact thing. God is powerful enough to care for you. Trust him. Rest in him acknowledge his care in the past and remember his promises to care and strengthen and encourage in the future. Well, that's all we need to say about that. Verses 28 to 29, we'll move on to our next section. The word of God says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. As Gordon Ketty rightfully noted in this section, he says, in the first place, we should notice that Jesus declared his thirst because he knew all things now were accomplished. That is to say, all things pertaining to his death had come to pass. The moment of death had come. In this, we see the Lord's comprehensive awareness of the purpose of God. And that's exactly what Jesus displays here. A comprehensive awareness of the purpose of God. We've seen this over and over and over again in this text. We're reminded Jesus was not a helpless victim here. Jesus had one purpose in coming to earth. And that purpose was to die for the sins of his people. He was fully aware of that purpose from the get-go. And so even though what he went through in suffering is just beyond our comprehension, and because we love him, we, we feel pain when we hear these things, uh, we do know that none of this took him by surprise. And last week I mentioned for us not to dismiss or overlook the physical suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this week I want to caution us in the other way of making the mistake of thinking that this was the main and only cause for his suffering, that the beatings of Jesus, the physical toll he took was the main and only cause of his suffering. The suffering that Jesus endured, friends, it was more than the crucifixion. We need to see this. He has unrivaled suffering of abandonment. This is where this suffering also takes place. Jesus had unrivaled suffering of abandonment. William Hendrickson, one commentator, notes this. He says, It's been said that only the, the damned in hell will know what Jesus suffered when he died on the cross. In a sense, this is true, for they too suffer eternal death. One should add, however, that they've never been in heaven. The Son of God, on the other hand, descended from the regions of infinite delight in the closest possible fellowship with his Father to the abysmal depths of hell. On the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? People in hell know nothing of what it's like to be forsaken by the Father. To have known his sweet fellowship and his delight and then to be forsaken by the Father. They've never known it. And in that sense, nobody can ever fully appreciate what Jesus endured as our Savior, ever. Suffering, unimaginable, and unlike anything we could ever know. Another thing to notice in these scriptures is yet another fulfillment of scripture. We said Jesus said he thirsted, and this is to fulfill the scripture in Psalm 69, 21. They said, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's another way the Old Testament is fulfilled by the New Testament scriptures. And we can't help to see the link between uh, the hyssop that's used here that was given for Jesus to drink, and recalling, if you remember, that the hyssop plant was used to spread... The blood of the lamb on the day of Passover. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world indeed. This is what we see here, the thirst of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. The hyssop connected to the lamb of God is is surely no coincidence at all. So listen, I know this is a lot of facts, right? This is a lot of uh, what, what we call traditional apologetic sort of encouragements to you and using this to build arguments to know that Jesus is Messiah. But listen to me, folks, there's a reason why these things fit together and why they're only fulfilled in Jesus. And uh, Dr. J.P. Free, in his book, Archaeology and the Bible History, he calls our attention to the fact that there are approximately 332 distinct prophecies in the Old Testament which have literally been fulfilled in Christ. The mathematical probability of all of these prophecies being fulfilled in one man, he says, is represented by this fraction. Go ahead and show that, Nate. One in 84 with 100 zeros after 84. That's a big number. And listen, I, I don't share that with you for you to say, hmm, that's interesting, noted, right? I don't, I don't do that. But the, the sheer fact that you might just be so amazed by the precision of God's prophecy, that when the Bible brings forth the truth that you you quite just wrestle with that one. Because this is what I know to be true from the world, that you'd be reminded, the Bible's not playing around, folks. It is always true at all times. Never stops being true. Why would, why would God have this amount of precision and then open it for interpretation in other particular areas? It's either all God's word or it's none of God's word. You can't pick and choose. So some, um, now uh, let's move on now to lastly, our our last verse here in verse 30. We're coming to the conclusion here. Um, Verse 30 says these particular words. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, while the other gospel accounts mention uh, the number of other things Jesus said as he hung upon the cross on that particular day, only John, remember, records this cry of victory, which is exactly what it is. And this sums up his entire ministry, doesn't it? It's finished, Jesus said. It is finished. Some believe a better translation would include it is accomplished or it has been completed. And either way, his point is that he had done all that the Father had given him to do. During his life, he lived a perfectly holy and righteous life on behalf of his people. And now in his death, he has made perfect atonement for the sins of his people. By his his life and by his death, the ceremonial laws and rituals were finished. They're done. He was satisfied with the work that he had done. He was filled with joy. He had finished the battle with the enemy. He was victorious. It's only in that light that Jesus could offer up his spirit. And you notice, that's what the text says. He gave his life. This is what it says. He gave himself up. He did it. Why? Because he was finished. They didn't take it from him. In other words, he gave it up, exactly what he told us earlier in the gospel account. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. See, friends, while the enemy might think they have the upper hand in death, uh, in the death of Christ, the reality was that Jesus is in full control on this day. He gave up his life voluntarily. No man or creature took it from him. Jesus finished the work that you and I could never finish. Folks, uh, remember this. If you belong to Jesus, he thirsted so that you could drink of the living water to never thirst again. He became poor that you would be rich in the blessings of the Lord. He was crushed that you would be made whole. He was forsaken that you would be brought nearer to God. He cried that you might have joy everlasting. He was wounded so that you would be healed. He went to war and conquered our enemies so that we might know his peace. All of this tells us some wonderful things about God's holy anger against sin and his holy love for sinners. Indeed, if we see anything in this text, we must see that sin is abhorrent to God. He cannot look upon it. This is why the Father forsook his son upon the cross that day. We get a glimpse here of just how tragic sin is by considering the lengths God went to in order to deal with it. Consider the magnitude of his judgment for sin. Calvin put it like this. He said, Assuredly, we are prodigiously stupid if we do not plainly see in this mirror with what abhorrence God regards sin. And we are harder than stones if we do not tremble at such judgment as this. And then he also goes on to say a word about this love. He says, When on the other hand, God declares that our salvation was so dear to him that he did not spare his only begotten son. What abundant goodness and what astonishing grace do we here behold. Church, it it should cause us to be uneasy to think about what God did in dealing with sin. But we should also be equally amazed and wondrous at the love he shows to, to us in how he dealt with our sin. And so let me just say that once again, this last word of application, and we'll conclude here. Given everything we've seen in this sermon and everything we've seen in John chapter 19 up to this point, all that Jesus has done for us as his people, given the depth of his sacrificial love for us, is there any sacrifice that he could require of us as his church that would be too great a thing for him to ask? Is there anything? Is there any sin that is too valuable to you to give up in light of what Jesus sacrificed in his love for you? Is it more valuable to you than what you see here in this gospel account? Look at the depth of the love of Christ and let that be something that draws your heart into a place of repentance. To give up these things because friends, they are not worth it. They will not bring you joy. They will only bring you destruction. There's something so much more valuable to behold, and it's the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. There's forgiveness with him. If we would come to him this morning and confess our sin, we are told he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's come asking him for forgiveness. For forgiveness with a heart that is willing to sacrifice any and all for the sake of Jesus who gave it all for your salvation. Amen. Please join your hearts with me in prayer. Let's stand together now. Father, how could we ever see our own unworthiness of your grace if it were not for this text? And if it were not for this event... Lord, we, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to our own way. But you, Father, have caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus. So, Father, we say there is nothing that we find in sin that is too valuable to this day repent of and lay at your feet. There is nothing, Father, in our lives that is so valuable that we would not be willing to sacrifice for the good of your kingdom and for your glory. We must see everything in light of this, Father. And we ask for your help because we are prone to forgetfulness. We will forget this all tomorrow if you do not come and remind us by your spirit through your word each day. Which is why we must renew our minds day by day with the gospel It's why we must not just hear about this crucifixion every time it's brought up or we come to it in Scripture, but every day we need to be reminded of what you sacrificed for us for the glory of God upon the cross so that we might be energized and reminded that there is nothing too great that we cannot sacrifice for you. Lord, we ask for your help in this. We ask that we would come with repentant hearts and Lord, ultimately, if there's anyone here who, who's never really heard this before, who's never clicked, Lord, they, they would be reminded that this is what you accomplished for salvation. You, being perfect, suffered the wrath of eternal sin so that we may come to you by faith and repentance. If we would just lay our lives down at your feet, if we just give our lives over to you, you were faithful and willing to forgive us and cleanse us. Father, I pray if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you, that they would know you. That they would serve you with your life. And that no matter what takes place, you would get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.